to the Stalk and I podcast for single women considering solo motherhood by donor conception. I'm your host, Mel Johnson, the solo motherhood coach and solo mum to a three-year-old daughter. For series three of the podcast, I've interviewed a variety of people who share their personal stories, providing a collection of different perspectives of paths to parenthood. In today's episode, I speak to Jocelyn, solo mum to her nearly four-year-old son. Jocelyn became a solo mum by using a known donor. And in today's episode, we talk all about the decision to use a known donor. Jocelyn, thank you so much for recording with me today. You're very welcome. It's lovely to be talking to you. So series three of my podcast, um, we've been covering different solo motherhood stories. um, So people in all different circumstances. And one of the stories that so far I haven't covered is someone who's used a known donor, which I know you have. So I'm really excited to sort of explore that with you a little bit today. I know everyone's experience with that is different, but I think probably there's some good themes that we can cover, uh, particularly if there's other people who are considering that route. So before we get into the detail of that, do you want to give yourself an introduction? Yeah, of course. I am now 42. Um, I live in Hong Kong with my almost four-year-old, who I conceived in 2016. I was having uh, issues with my cycle and saw a doctor's advice. And then they began asking questions about family history. And it, it was discovered that my mother had her menopause at 42. And through this conversation and through all the checks, I'm sure lots of the women in this group have had done, um, the AMH, the FSH, all the other sort of pokey things that people do to you in these situations. And yeah, they kind of said to me, my fertility was really poor. My AMH was three, uh, which was quite significantly low. And I was only ovulating a couple of times a year. So the suggestion was that I would crack on and try and have a child alone. My doctor was really upfront about suggesting not egg freezing because with my age and my fertility picture, it was unlikely to be successful. I then of course desperately tried to get this man that I'd had a relationship with off and on for a few years to fall heavily in love with me. Uh, that failed. And so then I looked down the route of using a donor and went through using anonymous donors and known donors as a process of what do I think would work for me. And it happened to coincide with my brother getting involved with uh, 23andMe and Ancestry and us finding lots of relatives. And I started to sort of think mm, uh, anonymous donation is, is a limited picture. I think long term, as things change, it's going to be almost impossible for that to be the case. So for me in that situation, I thought about known donors a bit more seriously than I potentially did at the start. I think it was against most people's advice for reasons I'm sure we'll discuss in a bit. And then um, having lived in a house with a a bunch of gay men for most of my 20s, I was just really mindful of how many men there are out there who um, their sexuality determines their ability to become fathers and they want to be. So I explored that option and, and my donor was kind of almost right there waiting for this opportunity um, which worked out really well for us both and really? we were successful and now I have a very wild uh, almost feral <laughs> toddler <laughs> who I absolutely adore um, but yeah a very lucky situation for me. So just going back, isn't it funny what you say you tried to get the, this guy to fall in love with you? Because I think so many people go through that same like, 
it's, I've got to make it happen, which is like the least likely time it's going to happen. And you're like, it needs to happen. It's so hard, and isn't it? I think that's what I find the most, not the most heartbreaking thing, but I, you know, in these forums and groups that we're in and the women that I meet who are considering this path, lots of them are in that place where they're still like just hoping for that man, that right man. And I was there. And I think it's, it's the question that people ask, I respond to the most because I just remember that grief. I remember being sat in my car, like holding a steering wheel where I pulled over at the side of the road and just sobbing that this was not what I wanted. Mm. I, I didn't want this path and this wasn't for me. And I wanted to be in love and I wanted to like have a baby with the person that I love most in the world. And it took, it really took like grieving for a couple of years, I think before I was really ready to make the decision and I kind of wish I had a crystal ball and I could have seen this future that I, I love, that I'm living now, back then and known that it was going to be okay. And, and more than that, that there are days when I'm like, oh, I'm really lucky I did this on my own. I get this for myself yes. and I had just done it a bit earlier, really. I think that was, if anyone says, do you have any regrets? I'm like, yeah, I left it a bit longer than I should have done. I'd like to have started a bit sooner. I think lots of women will go through that, that grief process and that reimagining of a future that they had always seen in one way is what we talk about the most on my group coaching course choosing solo it's that grief and letting go of the fairy tale idea of how you thought things would happen and I feel exactly the same as you if people ask me if I've got any regrets it's the amount of time I spent worrying that this was my route yeah. whereas now exactly the same I'm like oh okay <laughs> if I would have known that it was like this then actually I wouldn't have spent so much time concerned about it Every time I hear someone talk about their mother-in-law or how yeah. their husband doesn't do something right or these things they have sort of don't really have control of are frustrating for them. I'm just yeah. like, <laughs> not <laughs> over here. And it's <laughs> yeah. just like a, a little small reminder that actually this is a beautiful thing to have to yourself. I think motherhood is, like fatherhood is a wonderful thing. There's no denying that. But I think motherhood is a very unique bond yeah. And it's quite nice not to have to share it. I think um, I always say it's like a real balance, isn't it? Because there's real pros and then there's some things that are harder. But it depends on your individual circumstances, honestly. What you say, like looking out for it, because I think some people look for the evidence that reinforces that it would have been better in a couple whereas I look for yeah. the evidence that it's brilliant as it is yeah. and I think that mindset shift can change things so so was it the tests that you did that sort of like made, helped you make that final decision had you considered it before that or no I do you know I had always said in my early 30s when I was kind of single and I was about to say churning through the world. Man, that sounds awful. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> sounds very fun. <laughs> it was not nearly that fun. Uh, but like continually looking at the wrong people, shall we say. And, and things just weren't kind of working out. And I was just, I remember saying to friends, I was like, oh, if I don't meet anyone by 40, I'll just do it on my own. So I'd always kind of said that I would, but never really entertained the idea seriously. I just think I knew from, from potentially some of my earliest memories that my path would always lead to motherhood. Like that was an absolute non-negotiable for me in my life. Yeah. And however that came to be, I think I kind of mother lots of my friends. I mother all my friends' children. I mother all the adults around me. I just, I 
I have that kind of personality, I think. And I chose to be a teacher because I love being around children. And it was just, it was not going to be okay to not have kids. So I knew that. I assumed I'd always meet someone to have them with. And then when someone kind of handed me the information that, nope, this is not happening for you. There's not enough time. It was almost a no brainer that that's what I was going to do. I was nudged into it actually a little by, of all the people in the world, my father, who I did not think would support it at all, being quite traditional and conservative, but he was just like, yep, do this thing. I suppose he knows you best and he knows what you want and wants you to be happy, I suppose. I think it's exactly that. I think he knew that I would never be happy if I didn't. And he's very much of the mindset that like you can always regret something you didn't do, but it's, it's hard to regret something you did. Yeah, I've not met a parent yet in my life and I've worked with many children and I just haven't met any that regret it they find it hard they find it challenging it doesn't always work out for them but they don't regret the actual having of a child I totally agree wise words from your dad yeah (laughs) he's very fond of wise words (laughs) (laughs) so then when you'd had those tests did you then take immediate action or no I actually it was about a year and a half of I so initially when I had the first tests I refused to believe that and I was like no I'm getting a second opinion sort of second opinion and then a third and by three people giving the same picture I was like yeah they're probably right my initial reaction was oh it's you know money grabbing they're going to try and get me to freeze my eggs or do IVF and it's expensive and I don't need it and of course that's not what these clinics are out to do so um so yeah so it I went through a few a few different doctors to really get a solid picture and then again like I said like a year and a half of just sort of trying to nudge this relationship into a slightly different place from where it was at um and that wasn't happening and then I think I just I knew that I wasn't quite ready to take the leap and then circumstances actually that I was living overseas and was only in the UK a couple of times a a year, like summers and Christmases, and that where I lived, it is illegal Mm. to have fertility treatment as a single woman, and and therefore impossible, that I was limited to the times in which I could try. So it was either summers or Christmases, and as I was getting to the end of the two year, like 18 months to two years that they had given me, I just thought, this is it, I need to go for it. It took about a year and a half before I really started kind of trying to put things into place and then I think I conceived him pretty much two years to the day from when I'd had my first doctor's appointment and that was in the UK yes um, I used a clinic in London that where I had kind of gone online and looked for women in my position with my fertility at my age picked out two that had the sort of best results and then picked out the one that was at the most convenient tube station <laughs> brilliant and that was when you were traveling were you living in Hong Kong then yeah so Hong Kong has been my base for about 13 years oh wow okay long term yeah so a long time but I spend about three months a year in the UK because of my job as a teacher I have quite extended holidays more so there than I would if I was teaching in the UK and come back for Easter's Christmas and summer so I'm here for about a quarter of the year yeah but but yeah I moved out there a while back and did you ever consider coming back or did you always know you were going to stay in Hong Kong to do it? Um, no, I think every year I consider coming back. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I love it there. Like in my career, it certainly pays financially to be there. And children are just a bit nicer in Hong Kong than, <laughs> than they were in the schools I worked at in England. Mm. Um, but 
it's very much an easier place to be a solo parent because of the, the way that care and is, is structured but being apart from family now I have him especially yeah. in the time of COVID when travel's been restricted it, it changes the picture somewhat I think yeah so it's been a bit tough yeah I think it's just I think it's great to have family nearby but if not family then it's just somebody who supports your situation and and why you did it and um, I think we often have girls in these groups asking questions about I don't think my family would support me doing this I don't have a good network to which I think it's important to have those people around and um, so being away from family is tough however the people that are most supportive of my situation and really help me out and kind of play a bit of a male role model and you know they're the ones who step up if I need something of people that I didn't even know before I was pregnant yeah. and it was it's the husbands of girls I met in my antenatal classes who were like right no we're doing this we're stepping in we're going to move that for you we're going to build that furniture for you and so I think I wouldn't let that stop people but it is there are challenges to being away I, I love that because that's a big thing of mine what I always say is go on the antenatal class and don't forget that the husbands are people too, because sometimes yeah. people are like, I remember one conversation where someone said, can you believe it? They, they then wanted to meet up with the husbands. And I was like, oh, not the husbands. And it's not like, men. I know. and I was like, and, you know, brilliant. Then maybe you'll get on with the husbands as well. And as actually, the, you know, to have, to have men that have, you know, like, people talk about you know like male role models and is it your brother is it this person and I'm like the men that went through that at the same time as you so these men that watched their women get like bloated and puffy feet and be tired and irritable and experience birth and all the grim things that happen to your body (laughs) in and shortly (laughs) after and they get it and they are so in awe of a woman who has chosen to do that alone and is doing it alone true I think it just it changes the relationship I mean the the two men that I am particularly close to two friends husbands have said you know fairly often they're like you know they have a rough day with their kids and they're like how do you do it are you superwoman I'm like no I just don't know any different but I think they really step up for me because they've seen someone they love doing it and finding it tough and so they're really there yeah I love that yeah I'm lucky (laughs) brilliant so talk to me then about the process of choosing your donor so you said that you did you have a choice of people (laughs) yeah so um I I always cringe when I tell people this bit because it sounds awful (laughs) but I effectively did sort of some mental window shopping I knew for myself that I was uh, much keener on the idea of it being a gay man and mm-hmm. um, I was just scared that if it wasn't it could mess with emotions I might suddenly look at this man differently and be like oh I have feelings for you you're the father of my child or vice versa and um, two straight male friends both genetically quite gift like you know good choices and <laughs> um, offered to take on that role for me and in both of them I said to them this is great but you have to think how a future woman that you might meet could feel about this true how they could feel about me the fact that you've already had children like you don't want to miss out on something because of this which is very kind of you but uh, let's not go there and then I I knew that I didn't want to approach one of my closest male friends in case it changed a dynamic in our friendship or within a friendship group 
so I kind of went to like the periphery which was my good friend's friends or in the case of the man that turned out to be my baby's father my friend's ex-boyfriend right okay (laughs) so he was you know quite separate from me we had met uh, a bunch of times in so like you know 2005 to 2008 I guess um, had stayed friends on Facebook, occasionally commented on each other's posts, but really hadn't communicated in quite a long time. Yeah. Um, I did actually approach, I sent an email, a very, very open email to six people um, just saying, this is my situation. I'm going to go ahead with an anonymous donor if it's not something that suits one of you know that I've approached more than one of you. Please don't feel pressured or obliged. Don't even feel the need to reply but this is my situation. This is what I'm planning to do. And I know from conversations with you and things you've said to others and posts you've made on your social media that you love kids. And I want to offer you this opportunity if it works. And so of the six, three never replied, which is, you know, I kind of said, don't reply if you don't want to, because it, you know, it's an awkward conversation. Mm. One replied and said, yes, this would be wonderful. I assume you're moving home to the UK. and I was like, no, I'm not. And that kind of ruled them out. And another replied and said, I would really love this, but my partner isn't keen for me to have a child if he doesn't. Um, but the first reply actually was from my son's father, who said, I've been waiting for this opportunity. Um, I have nearly gone down this road a couple of times before. One with a lesbian friend of his who wanted him to be the biological donor but for the child to not know that he was the donor and have no relationship with him. And he didn't want that. Mm. And then um, another friend who wanted him to co-parent and potentially live together. Gosh, total extremes. Completely. (laughs) He is partly New Zealander, partly British. And he had just said like, he didn't know if he might ever want to return to New Zealand and he wouldn't be able to do that if he had a child in the UK that he was co-parenting. So that wasn't right for him. But at that point he had had all his tests done. So he actually knew, you know, like, you know, where he was at with sperm count and motility and so on. And then I approached pretty much asking for something very much in the middle. I wanted my child to know who the father was, to have some access, but for them not to be involved in day-to-day decisions, for there to be no money changing hands. So I didn't want the kind of waters muddied, but I wanted my son to know who that person was. Yeah. Um, and it was pretty much what he'd been looking and waiting for. So we uh, thrashed out a few emails backwards and forwards. He actually raised questions that I had not thought of that really got me thinking. So it was him that said to me, you know, have you thought about what happens if you die? Mm. Have you thought about what happens if like you end up in a relationship and I have concerns that the the partner is abusive or so on or what happens if you develop a problem with alcohol or drugs or and lots of questions and he was like really mindful that he wants the child to know that he is the father mm-hmm. but he doesn't want to be considered to be next of kin because his lifestyle perhaps is not right not the, not the right choice yeah. to be an immediate parent and so I just, I think I felt really safe with him because he had done lots of the thinking mm. before, before. He wasn't I going into it naively. Yeah, not at all. And then, and then we met and sat down and it was very bizarre because he recommended a restaurant in London and it was only once we were sat there, we looked around and we're like, 
this used to be a nightclub. Did we come here like 15 years ago on a really messy night out? And we had, um, so it seemed like quite a, you know, comedy choice that we've looped back to the same venue. Yeah. Um, yeah, we talked and we thrashed things out and we drew up kind of almost like an agreement between ourselves. And, and then we just said like, you know, we've got this as a starting point, but we are open to the fact that our lives and situations and our feelings will change. Yeah. So we have this to come back to, but we know that it cannot be concrete. We just knew that we needed to be a bit flexible because the world changes and so will we. Yeah, no, I think that's really sensible because, and you also, you just don't know how you'll feel. You can anticipate how you might feel, but until it's there, you, you almost don't know, do you? So I think really wise. So um, in your agreement, what had you um, sort of come to an agreement on in terms of contact? Um, so we, our agreement, we covered a few different things. We sort of talked about um, beliefs towards uh, education, faith, um, behaviour management. I really like the fact that he, he sort of said, you know, like, you know, bad behaviour and punishment. And then he literally wrote another line immediately said, I hate the word punishment. I want to take that out. And I was like, yes. Yeah. the teacher in me was really happy yeah um, and then we talked about contact and we uh talked about like ex- uh, extended family contact as well and so we had agreed that there would be we were going to be flexible about contact we kind of knew that when my son was really young the contact would be mostly through me like I would send photos and videos intermittently there was no expectation for how often you know he said you know like I appreciate mums are really busy so if you can only do it a few times a year I totally get that. If you find time like once a week to just drop a couple of photos over, that would be lovely. Um, And maybe we'll try and have like a sort of video call once every couple of months. And then we did say that when my son or daughter, we didn't know at that time, was older, he would like to be able to have a bit more time with them. So potentially as a teenager, they could go and visit him in their holidays. Would I be open to that? Um, And we had said that we would try and allow them to have a visit once a year or thereabouts so he has made three journeys to us and we actually decided to go and visit him and his family which was a very interesting experience because I had really said to friends before oh I'm taking Toby to meet his family I'm taking Toby to meet his family and as soon as I arrived and I think perhaps it's part of the Moldy culture but they were very much like no you are our family now because you gave our brother a son or you know his mother you know you gave me a grandchild um, and you've done this thing for our brother and it just hadn't occurred to me before that he would have family that would be pleased that, that had happened yeah I'd, I'd had worries about um having read an article from the US where a girl and a guy had drawn up agreement between themselves where he was a known donor and they'd had a child and the parents of the donor had sought custody so I was really mindful of have you told your family? Do they understand? Is this, are they on board with this idea? But it just hadn't occurred to me that like with the shift of him being there, that potentially they would just see it as family. I think perhaps that's a cultural thing, but it was a lovely experience. And then obviously we haven't seen him for a year and a half because, you know, (laughs) the joy of coronavirus. But I think we kind of, our aim is maybe they can meet in person once a year and send photos and videos. And actually they've just, because my son's really talking now, (laughs) really talking, they've just started sending each other sort of uh, short WhatsApp 
video messages Lovely. where you know he'll be saying what are you doing today and they'll just sort of have a little sort of conversation but it's you know days between messages or then we'll have a couple of weeks where there won't be any yeah and my son seems really happy with that setup he knows who the man is and um, he actually used the word daddy that was part of our agreement he was okay. like and um, he would like to be known as the daddy but any other man I should meet if that happened can be dad pop daddy papa anything but he he wanted my son to know that he was daddy and I was more than happy and I know that it's quite controversial and we are really firm usually about using the word donor so I actually do both with him I will sort of say daddy doesn't live in Hong Kong daddy lives in New Zealand he is our very special donor daddy because he gave mummy this wonderful gift and my son kind of he doesn't use the word donor daddy but he's very aware that Daddy and mummy are not together. Daddy loves other boys. Daddy lives in another country. And he, as a child, was a special gift. Like if you use the word donor daddy, even if he doesn't use it, it's like it at least sort of makes it, it emphasises that it's slightly different from a usual setup that he might see with his friends yeah. sort of thing so that he knows it's different. Yeah, and I think from everything I've read, I joined the Donor Conception Network when I was still in the thinking phase. And I think everything I've read points to it should be very clear that the donor is a donor and be really, you know, like the language around that. Um, even even with a known donor? Well, there are, there's not much written about known donors, not in the same way. But I just kind of thought, you know, he's going to have this relationship, he'll know him. But I think it's important for him to really understand his story. Yeah. Um, so I have, it's a, it's a bit twee, but I wrote a sort of storybook for my son. So, you know, once upon a time, there was a little girl who lived and blah, and blah, and blah. And it tells my story and it tells his father's on the other side of the world and how both of us wanted to be parents. And we hadn't had, I hadn't met the right person. His father couldn't because he loved other men. But it's like, you know, love and luck and magic would have it, have it our paths crossed. And we decided to do this together and a doctor help and blah, and blah, and blah, and, and have kind of illustrated it. And I have written the exact same story word for word in the second half of the book with photographs and scans of doctor's visits and appointments. And, you know, like those little eggs we see when they're doing their tracking in your, your cycle ready before we have the, conce- uh, you know, the, the conception. And, and in within that, the word donor exists appears again because yeah. it's on the on all of the paperwork um so I just think as he grows older and knows the story more then the word donor will become more familiar and you know as as life takes these sort of turns I've spoken to other girls over the years who've now become mothers too through known and unknown donors and so he'll also be around children who are being raised through donation yeah. and some of our best friends are uh, a pair of uh, lesbian mothers with two children, two daughters born through a donor. So it's not a word that won't be around him as he grows. And Um, he can decide what word he wants to use anyway, can't he? As he gets older, it's up to him then. For sure. And I think, you know, like, he's never going to use the word donor addressing his daddy. No. But I think if someone else asked in the situation, he would be able to say, this is what happened. And does he, I mean, for, it's still quite young, isn't it? Does he explain his situation at all or is he a bit young for that? No, I think we're sometimes, I, yeah, no, he doesn't. I, I think from what I have heard from his school, 
no one has ever asked him mm-hmm. in a school setting no other children have mentioned it one of the children we know asked me they're like where's Toby's daddy and he overheard and he went New Zealand and then just yeah. walked away <laughs> <laughs> but uh he hasn't really been asked yet I suspect it will come he's moving to joining nursery um in September and I think once he starts there mm. conversations about family will potentially come up more through you know the, the early years units of learning in schools so I think he might start getting questions now going forward but I think from his perspective he would just say like my daddy's in New Zealand true doesn't it doesn't need any more explanation than that at four does it yeah and I think that's it and I think you know as time goes on because he'll be so familiar with the story I hope he won't really have to ask much and if other kids ask him he would just be quite matter of fact. Yeah, and he's got all the facts there, hasn't he? It's us that overcomplicate these stories, isn't yeah. it? Not the kids. I think the only time it will start to get complicated is when he starts to understand the act of baby making in mm. the traditional sense. Because it will be those questions of, well, if my dad loves other men, did him and my mum have sex effectively? Mm. And although in the book it says a very clever doctor, took you know like took a seed I've done it in a very mm. child funny way took a seed from daddy and planted it in mummy's tummy which she grew and looked after mm. and it became this perfect baby and so yeah I think there might be some questions about how that happens because when you're taught in school about where children come from they don't ever go into children who are born in ways other than through sexual intercourse so I guess he'll be the kid putting his hand up going that's not always true <laughs> that's true that's yeah. true I am um, I've got a really good book actually which um talks about the recipe to make a baby and it t- talks about making a cake um and like you need these ingredients and you put it in a bowl and put it in the oven and it makes a cake and then it says you need these ingredients to make a baby and and shows how that works as well then it says if you don't have uh, you know you can get a donor can give the seed or the sperm that it that you need to um, right. make so and that's quite a good way because I I talk to Daisy about how babies are made now because she needs to understand otherwise she won't understand how it happens yeah. um, so she'll be way younger than most of her friends in, um, to <laughs> understand. You know what, that's how it should be like why yeah. are we waiting I, I you know this is my teacher side coming out but I have parents often like horrified at some of the words we use for body parts for children when we're teaching about the body and they're absolutely you know like I can't say that word in front of my child and I'm like but it's just a body part and if you say these words when they're really young it just becomes part of their vocabulary there shouldn't be shame attached to them there shouldn't be you know like whatever else and I think it's the same with where babies come from they understand what every other part of their body is for but it's the one thing that we hide. You know, they're not going to run off and go no, and try these things just because they know it happens. If you explain it in the sense that when you are a grown adult, you can use that body part to make a baby. Yeah, and I think if we do that and then we say, you know, for some people, for some pe- that's, how, that's how many of the mummies and daddies you meet have made their babies, but not all. Some will have needed a doctor to help them. Some will have, you know, adopted their babies. And in our home, you came to be because of this. Yeah. And it just, it just needs to be. Matter of fact. Yeah. Yeah. And really, 
and they respond to how we respond because if we're like stressed about it or awkward about it they'll feel like it's awkward whereas if we're really matter of fact about it there's an amazing woman called Sarah Sproul I think her name is and and I'm recording a podcast with her for the fourth series of the podcast and it's about how we speak to our children and she says the importance of saying the actual world and I was talking to my other solo mum friends about it because we were saying you know, she says you should use vagina and vulva and penis. And my friends were like, oh oh my goodness, we can't say those words. And, and, and she talks about telling your children about sex and how babies are made. And, um, I thought it would be great to get her on the podcast because it's, um, you know, we start quite young telling our children because of the circumstances and, but it's amazing how difficult people find it. Oh, for sure. And, and, and I have this conversation with parents year after year after year because of my job and you know, I just like point them in the direction of the research, which shows how important it is for so many reasons yeah. for them to be able to accurately name body parts. It's just, you know, if they have illness or pain or if somebody touches them inappropriately, they're just so well protected if they're mm-hmm. able to describe exactly what happens and just the mental, you know, the mental mindset. But, um, but yeah, I think, but there you go. We talked earlier about positives and negatives of solo parenting. <laughs> yes. the, positive, the children will have a really strong and well-rounded understanding of the different ways that families come to be. Very true. And diversity. Like I constantly talk to Daisy about diversity. I, I've got a really good book and it sort of talks about this is how different families' uh, setups uh, are. Some have a pet, some live in a flat, some live in a, a caravan, some live in a house, some, oh, yeah. you know, all different things. But I think our children, yeah, diversity just comes into it more because we think it through because we're in a slightly different a traditional yeah. setup, I would say. Great. So, so have there ever been any problems so far? Like, has there been any tension or any misunderstanding? Um, no, there haven't. The only thing that I, that has cropped up since, since my son was born is that his father has had some difficulties in his, sort of his personal life. And I think was, he wouldn't mind me saying, I think, I think he was quite depressed at points and it just surprised me how much I, felt empathy and compassion and worry for him because although we were sort of uh, more acquaintances really before we had my son it has been impossible to not build more of a relationship since and so you know like when that was kind of going on and he'd gone a bit quiet and I knew that he wasn't really in a happy place I just I had this strong feeling that um like I wanted to be able to help and I, I think I'm one of those people anyway, but it did surprise me how much affection I had for him and wanting to know that he was okay. Um, and, and, you know, he's great now and you know, things have all, you know, sort of pretty rosy and bright. But I think the last year and a half around the globe has had, you know, it's made it tough for some people. But yes, yeah, so that was the only thing is that it surprised me how much affection I had grown for him. Um, because he was a man that has given me this incredible thing but but otherwise no I've been incredibly incredibly lucky I do know that it's not that way for everybody and I know that situations change and there can be conflict or disappointment because the expectations don't don't match the, the the reality of the situation 
but I have been really lucky and all the things that were real kind of deal breakers to me like I didn't want him to have siblings with other mothers because I just I thought it would just make it simpler and I wanted there to be some consistent communication I was worried that you know they could build a relationship and then he would disappear off the face of the earth just hasn't hasn't really been a problem so I I appreciate I've been lucky and I know that not everyone experiences that we did talk at length before before we went down this path we were still in the discussion stages about what we do when things go wrong because we both were aware that things could go wrong and we talked about what they might be most of the conversation was about if either of us had another partner you know if I met somebody and then how that would change the relationship dynamic between my son and my donor um, or if he met somebody who really didn't want him to maintain a relationship with another child and we sort of hashed that out in the early days so I think we were really aware of the biggest pitfalls and um, we'd said that money was never going to enter into it I didn't want anything from him and so that has never been an issue so I think we've been very lucky and we live in separate countries which also you know, like there's a limit to, you know, to how possible if we if they're going to see each other, it's a it's quite a big deal because it means someone's flying internationally. I think that living in another country for me, I I feel like it makes it more clear cut because you can't yeah. just have like popping rounds. It can't be, you know, it it kind of sets it up in if that's how you intended it to be in the first place it's yeah. up nicely because it's it's logistically it's harder I guess yeah for sure and I think there's a real sort of security comfort in that that there is some like physical distance all the research that I've read said that donor conceived children many slash most their preference is to have a known donor um did did you know that when you were making no. the decision no I didn't at all it's really nice to hear yeah I had no idea at all I think I tried to imagine how I would feel in that situation and I think potentially I was like I think I would rather know who they are even if it's just information about what their name is yeah. or where they come from just something it, I feel like women now are getting more information from their clinics than some time ago so at least those children that don't know who their donor is or perhaps know a little bit more. Yeah, I, I yeah, I think it's true. So the, the the countries where it's release ID and they can get the information when the child's eighteen, or in some countries sixteen, or at least they have a little bit of information about them as they're growing up. I think definitely helps. Um, but yeah, the research that I read says that um, most donor conceived children say that they would prefer to have a known donor. So, um, so that's good for your decision. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for anybody in that situation, what advice, because I think you've had a really great experience and I have heard a lot of stories where it hasn't been such a great experience. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give people who are considering using a known donor just based um, on your experience? I would say over like almost over have the discussions before you sort of you know get down and start handing the goods across because it's it's useful to like really overthink those things you know like kind of find details like what would happen if what would happen if but then be really mindful when you're drawing up your agreements that things change 
you know, say like, this is what we want at this point. This is what we are agreeing to now, but recognize that feelings change um, and situations change um, and be flexible. And I think the big one for me would be make sure that their whole families are on board, not just, not just them, because actually when you go into becoming a parent, it's more than just you. There's other people involved. And I think any of us that have, have children and have seen how our parents are with our children will know that a grandparent's love is quite quite an exceptional thing and I think you know if we use these donors who are known to us and their families don't have the same agreement or don't don't believe in our agreement that can be where there's a bit of a challenge yeah and so just checking that out yeah and just and just have trust if I think if it's a known donor if there's anything in you that's questioning it and thinking this might not be the right person it's probably not the right person yeah so have trust in your intuition sort of thing about yeah I think the other thing for me that I've sort of read about and is try to think about what your child will want because I've seen quite a few women who have come up with things and want the biological dad or the donor to be x y or z but that might not be what their child wants and I suppose at some point we need to be mindful that it's it will become their decision not ours anyway so I suppose it's good to have that in in our heads at the beginning yeah I think I think for sure and I think I'm I'm not going to try and speak for women that's silly I think the minute that we conceive a child and we're carrying every decision we make is based on what do we think is best for our child but yeah I think perhaps in these situations that's something we need to think of even preconception true really true yeah great well I know that there's lots of people who are at that stage of thinking should I use a known donor do I know anyone what sort of things do I need to consider and so I think this will be really helpful for people in that circumstance and I think both of us are really mindful that yours is one situation and with a known donor actually no two circumstances are the same and they you know there's so many different experiences but it's really interesting hearing about yours and you know so great that it's been such a positive experience for for all the parties involved which is what we want really isn't it (laughs) indeed and I'm going to throw one tiny thing on at the very end yeah uh, in that I've a few women have said to me like how did you broach them how did you actually start that conversation And the funny thing that came out of it after my son was born and people talked was not that it was unusual how I approached people. It was that men that I knew who I hadn't approached were a little little insulted that I hadn't gone to them. So I think women are sometimes worried about, you know, do I say, what do I, you know, how do I say something to this friend? What if he's really embarrassed? Or I think the overwhelming feeling from some of the men that I knew was that they were almost upset that I hadn't seen them as the viable oh, option. How funny. And so Gosh. not to be afraid about approaching the people that you consider would be good. Yeah. Um, well, I liked your thing as well, where you said, just don't even feel the need to reply, um, you know, because that just makes it easier for them, you know, if they don't need to yeah. re- a reply. So, oh, interesting. Good, good, th- good tip to think about, though. Um, <laughs> yeah. You don't want to go upsetting all your male friends <laughs> during this process. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time. It's been really fascinating to listen to your story. And thanks, Mel. It's been really nice talking to you. And just like that, we've reached the end of series three. Thanks so much to each of my guests. 
for so eloquently sharing their stories and to all of my listeners for your continued engagement. If you've enjoyed the series, I'd really appreciate it if you took a few minutes to rate and review it. To make that easier, I've created a link, ratethispodcast.com forward slash stalk, which makes it easier for you to leave a review. I'm busy recording the fourth series of the podcast, which will be out on the 1st of September 2021. This series is with a range of experts on a variety of topics relevant to solo motherhood. In the meantime, you can head to www.thestalkandi.com to see the latest dates for my group coaching courses or to book a one-to-one coaching session. Thanks for listening and see you again on the 1st of September for Series 4.